Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Our guest today is Doug Johnson, author of The Indispensable Librarian, Second Edition. Hi, Doug. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm so glad you're here. A guy with dark hair and a gray beard. I think I know that face somehow. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's been around for a few years, that's for sure. Mine masks my vitiligo. This is the skin condition I have that has me lose pigment in my skin. But I think the white beard is startling enough that my family is trying to get me to shave it off again. Really yeah. glad to have you here. Well, it's nice to have you. Go ahead. No, thanks for, thanks for asking me. It's, it's an honor to be here as well. You know, I've wanted to have you on the show for quite a while, and I'm sure glad it happened. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, we just finished this really fun homeschool conference. It was on homeschooling, unschooling, free schooling, democratic schooling, all sorts of forms of alternative education. And, you know, the keynotes were really, really good. Anyway, it's homeschoolconference.com. I think there's a lot that can inform practice of traditional educators that is coming out of that movement. Coming up in September, the uh, a week from Friday, actually a week from Thursday is the start of our global STEMX education conference. This is also turning out to be a fantastic event. It's STEM plus all of the other variable things that X might represent, including art and the like. Uh, and then in October is the Future of Libraries conference, the 18th and 19th, and the Global Education Conference, five days of craziness, four to 500 yeah. sessions every year, November 18th to the 22nd. If you are interested, we have some fun shows coming up. This has turned out to be a little bit of a busy week. Michelle Cordy from Canada, who gave an incredible keynote presentation at a conference that I was at, is going to talk about hacking your classroom. Kevin Jones on Thursday, two days from now, is going to talk about decog.me, his uh, movement to think about um, not being a cog in a wheel. Anyway, great education implications. StemXCon is the 19th to the 21st. September 25th, Christine Grosslow is going to talk about her book, Parenting Without Borders. I'm really interested in these ways in which we frame parenting learning practices uh, from different cultures. And I think that should just be a really great discussion. All of October is Connected Educator Month. And this is coming fast, and it is going to be fun. My task is going to be to hold a Connected Educator Cafe, a meet and greet every night with somebody that you might like to meet and get to know and become connected to. So uh, there will be a lot of events all month, and not just the ones that I'm in charge of. Will Richardson is currently scheduled for October 1. I don't know if that's going to shift with Connected Educator Month, but maybe not. Yovel Badash on No Child Held Back. Then the 11th to the 13th is the Reform Symposium. And, and for the first year, my first year, I'm actually helping them with the technical side of that conference, helping to run it. It's the fourth reform symposium. This is a terrific effort. Um, I can't wait to be involved in it. October 14th will be Connected Librarians Day. So I've lobbied for this. We're having Connected Educator Month. We're going to have a Connected Librarians Day as a part of that. That's Columbus Day, currently scheduled. Uh, the Library 2.13 conference, of course, on the 18th and 19th. On the 22nd, Lenore Skenazy is going to talk about her book, Free Range Kids. And then on the 29th, Brandon Bastid and I are going to drill down on a student bill of rights. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded. They're in full Illuminate Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. They're all at futureofeducation.com. So this is your chance to let us know where you're participating from. So look to the left of the whiteboard. You should see a set of icons, you're looking for the star icon. Double click on that and then click on the map. For those of you who know, I'm back in North Carolina uh, to start uh, spending the year at Black Mountain Seoul, the self-organized learning environment, the reopening of Black Mountain College is an experimental 
learning campus. <laughs> I'm so excited about that, but I will not talk about it at this moment, but look for more information as that moves forward. Sorry, there I messed up your icons. If you click on that star and then click again on the map, that would be great. And then go ahead and put a note in the chat. Yes, Peggy, I am spending the year here. We've moved our family, and uh, I cannot wait. It is drop-dead gorgeous, but just the whole idea of a learning campus without curricular material uh, is really an interesting one for me. So the way it works is people will come and do online courses or do gap years and the like, but they'll have a food service, dorm room, and I'm going to do a whole series of events here um, with guest lectures. Oh, look at this South America's strong showing tonight. Australia, New Zealand, China, Japan, looks like. Wherever you're joining us from, we're really delighted to have you here. And if you're listening to the recording, we sure are glad that you're doing so. So Doug, I think that the title of this book kind of says it all. Um, I'm not a librarian. I've, uh, I have this sort of deep respect for librarians, and, and I'm associated through the Future of Libraries or Library 2.0 1X conference. Um, but it feels to me that librarians are significantly underrated <laughs> in our current view of education, especially given the, the incredible degree to which they have a skill set about learning how to learn and curating information and, um, and looking at information. Um, is that changing? Are we getting better at recognizing the value of librarians? Well, I think uh, there are librarians and there are librarians, uh, uh, as perhaps there are teachers and there are teachers uh, out there. Uh, our best librarians, uh, those that have, I think, adapted to uh, uh, the changes that uh, digital information sources and the internet and our connected world uh, have brought about, I think absolutely are indispensable. Uh, those, unfortunately, who perhaps have clung to a, uh, a rather outmoded, uh, now outmoded view of, of librarianship, of, uh, of quiet rooms and, uh, and solely print resources and uh, the library as a uh, a repository of information uh, are, are uh, I don't think, regarded uh, in much esteem, and they're being, and they are quite dispensable. So, uh, the, the the right librarian is is absolutely indispensable, I think, to a modern education uh, system. There's a point in the book at the very end where you tell this sort of future story, and you have the uh, virtual cyber librarian named Marion. And, and I don't want to make too much out of this, but it does seem as though most of the people I talk to still have kind of a madam librarian view of librarians. I was sort of shocked one day to talk to a friend who, who sort of equated librarians with bus drivers in terms of skill set and, and pay level. So I, I know there are teachers and there are teachers. I know there are librarians and there are librarians. And I know that not all librarians are sort of forward thinking, but it does feel to me like culturally we still don't recognize the, the deeper value of librarians. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think uh, the, the library, uh, librarian stereotype runs uh, very deep in, in, in our culture. The, the shusher, the hair in the bun, the, the sensible shoes, the uh, uh, all those kinds of things that's been uh, emphasized by our, our media for for, for a very very long time, um, and it's. Uh, but I, I'm not sure sure that it's uh, much different than uh, the stereo. You know, we suffer from the same kind of problems that, that perhaps lawyers and physicians and uh, and engineers, as the geeks and uh, politicians suffer from as well too. Um, uh, if 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 your school or your organization or your public uh, uh, sees your skill set as a librarian as being equivalent to that of a bus driver, uh, I, I chalk that up to probably uh, a, a communication problem. So first of all, if you're not exhibiting more skills than a, than a bus driver does, uh, you're probably uh, due for replacement. But chances are you're doing a lot more with kids and with other educators than uh, 
and other people realize. Uh, one of the things we don't do very well, and this is something that I address in the book, is that uh, we don't uh, we don't uh, communicate particularly well uh, to uh, our administrators, to our parents, to our other teachers, exactly what it is that we do, uh, uh, and and public relations, communications, uh, even marketing is something that has to become a part of our uh, our, our skill set, whether we like it or not. In the book you add, you suggest that we need to add three roles for librarians. Virtual librarian, crow, crow's nester, and rabble rouser. I, didn't, I wasn't even aware there was a crow's nester, but I love the concept. Crow's Do you want to talk about the expanding mm -hmm. role? Mm. Yeah, actually, uh, those roles have been around for quite a while. One of the first professional articles that I ever wrote was probably about, about 1992, and and uh, I pulled these uh, I pulled these terms out uh, as sort of counterpoint to the uh, roles that the uh, AESL was at that time uh, promoting for school librarians. Uh, the virtual librarian, I think, it pretty much speaks for itself, and and that's come. Uh, uh, I think increasingly more to the fore uh, as as time has gone on, uh, as information comes uh, and, and entertainment comes in electronic formats, we have to shift our areas of expertise, of course, from print formats uh, and and uh, analog formats, now of course to digital formats. So, um, and uh, I think that's that's just a given. Uh, to me, that's a really a, a Increasingly, a really exciting time for school librarians. We see a lot of our teachers now offering uh, courses uh, that are supplemented uh, with, with Moodle, and, and Moodle needs it, uh, access to a lot of online resources, and those online resources need to be digital. Well, who's going to be there to help the teacher locate and access and evaluate and, and access those resources, except for except for the uh, the virtual librarian? Uh, the crow's nester, uh, if you remember the concept of the crow's nest on old sailing ships, that's uh, the person who sits way up in that little basket high on the mast and looks out uh, uh, over the seas to see the coming storms and the coming pirates and the coming new lands. Uh, it had to have been an absolutely terrifying kind of a, uh, a role to have on those sailing ships. And I think for those of us who look ahead to see what the changes are that are coming in education, uh, we may suffer a little bit of that fear as well, too. But as schools are starting to use technology to uh, do things like uh, uh, personalized and individualized education, to flip classrooms, to uh, 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 offer more virtual learning environments, to uh, really fundamentally change the way education is offered to our students. Uh, Somebody has to be in that crow's nest, uh, learning those new skills, those new techniques, and, and uh, helping point the way. And, uh, and I believe really the librarian is, is one of the people in the buildings that uh, uh, can help uh, can help teachers do that. And then of course the rabble rouser is is the change agent, the one that wants to see uh, schools get better for all kids, and is not afraid to uh, speak up and, and assume a leadership role in terms of making schools a more humane place uh, for students. I think uh, a lot of us are, are pretty upset by some of the things that have happened as a result of, uh, of testing and no child left behind and those sorts of things. I, uh, I wrote a post not long ago uh, talking about schools uh, killing the love of reading uh, because every time you read something you have to write a multiple choice uh, uh, test as a result of it, uh, why would anybody ever want to read? So uh, librarians can be that positive uh, uh, voice for, for change. So I want to draw uh, a parallel here, because I feel like the, the way in which the internet has given us individual voice, the way in which it um, provides alternative voices to traditional institutional voices, is creating an environment in which we are seeing the need for students to be agents, to be more proactive themselves, to um, not only learn how to learn, but to learn how to integrate what uh, roles that they want to play 
in a much more proactive way. It feels like there's a real parallel between this need that we see that we feel for students to become more proactive and the this, the message you're giving here of librarians being more proactively involved in the conversation and maybe that we're thinking educators as a whole becoming much more proactive. Is that parallel? Does that occur to you as well? Well, um, I think it's an interesting blend between our traditional role and, and, and what's coming out. And I'm not sure if this is answering your question or not, but uh, this is what your question made me think about. Uh, librarians have been the voice for intellectual freedom, uh, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of ideas, freedom of access to information for uh, first library, as long as librarians have been around. And, uh, which means we've been anti-censorship, we've been wanting to give people access to uh, information which allows them to make their own choices and their own decisions. Well, as, a, as the electronic world comes in, uh, good librarians, I think, then have extended that intellectual freedom concept into, first of all, being more or less, uh, well, I wouldn't say anti-filter, but I would say the appropriate use of internet filters in schools. We don't block uh, uh, access to any more information than we absolutely have to. But now I think the corollary to that is uh, the flip side of intellectual freedom is is not just having the, access, uh, the right to access other people's ideas and points of view, but also the right to express our own uh, ideas and our own points of view as well too. And that's why librarians, I think, now are going to fight for kids having access to, to Web 2.0 or, or ReadWriteWeb or whatever, or, or, or social networking sites, because uh, I, I, kids really do need to be able to, 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 to uh, uh, articulate and share their own values and their own ideas out there. And if a school blocks Facebook, if a school blocks Wikis, if a school blocks uh, these, these avenues for self-expression, uh, that, that, that side of the intellectual freedom coin. I told you that it was really hard for me because I read two of your books and they were both really compelling. There's even an additional piece to this. Uh, uh, reading your chapters on digital intellectual freedom and ethics and technology were really an opportunity for deep thinking, especially given sort of current cultural concerns around privacy and the sharing of information. Uh, you. You know, we're probably all feeling like we need to be a little bit careful about this topic, but what's the connection between what you've just described and the arguments for the right to intellectual freedom and privacy and the need to protect those? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good uh, that's a really good question. I think it's one we're probably all trying to answer, not just as uh, students or. Uh, or adolescents, but probably as adults as well. Uh, 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 you know, with every with every uh, right, like the right to uh, uh, free speech, the right to self-expression, comes responsibilities, and uh, that's probably the best thing that we can be teaching kids right now is that uh, you can say whatever you want to, but do know that there are maybe consequences as a result of your free expression as well too. I mean, uh, I've ever got every right to go out there and, and uh, uh, criticize my, my superintendent on my blog, but I have to realize that there are going to be uh, potential consequences as a result of that too. Uh, uh, you know, I just want kids to be very, very uh, self-aware. I want them to be deliberate about what they, what they put out online. I want them to understand the implications of creating a good digital footprint. Uh, uh, some kids may not care. I mean, we certainly have people in society that uh, that uh, their right to speak is of more importance to their job security than to their than to uh, a lot of things. Uh, but uh, it's that consciousness and that understanding of, of of the deliberateness, I guess you'd say, that to me is really important for kids to understand. Uh, privacy, man. I tell you what, I've had. I've had lots and lots of conversations online lately about uh, about the NSA and Google and, and all this privacy stuff and, and 
I tell you what, I'm I, I'm probably as confused as the next guy when it comes to that sort of thing. Uh, uh, I guess uh, I guess uh, uh, in many ways, uh, giving up one's privacy is 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 a positive thing. Read Scott Adams, and he says, well, you know, give up your privacy and tell the doctor one of your problems. He's got a better chance of giving you a cure, or you uh, 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 or you tell. Uh, Google what it is that you like, and they've got a better chance of supplying you with information about products that, that are going to appeal to you. Uh, at the same time, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I like the idea of, of either Google or the government uh, knowing uh, everything there is about me either. So, I, again, uh, I, I think it's uh, helping kids make informed choices about these kinds of things. That's probably I thought that the ALA material. Um, the, the the ethical code from the AOL Library Code and the um, I meant to look up the Bill of Rights, but it seems like you go a little bit deeper in the book there about the need to protect intellectual space. The story you tell is the uh, librarian who didn't even think about it but posted the the students' names and the books that they had out that were overdue. And my first thought was there are a lot of reasons you can check out a book. You know, if I check out a book on Nazi Germany, it doesn't mean that I'm a skinhead or a, mm. um, a bigot. I can be doing history research. But if I worry about people knowing what I check out mm. and making, taking implications from that, it feels like you're, you, you do want to make sure that librarians protect the privacy of that intellectual discovery. Well, I think that's been a long, uh, a long time uh, uh, philosophy of, of, of professional librarians. And, and again, I think that's one reason why we still need professional librarians in schools as opposed to uh, library clerks or even, forgive me, technology integration specialists, people with that traditional background in in, uh, in those kinds of concepts. Yeah, and, you know, uh, the example you give, I think, is, uh, uh, I don't think if I check out a book on Nazi Germany, people are going to think I'm a Nazi. Uh, but what happens if I, I pick up a book that uh, talks about uh, uh, how do I know if I'm, you know, a homosexual, or, or, or uh, what to do if my if I'm living in a, an abusive family situation? I mean, there are there are some very sensitive areas about which children want to have more information, and we don't want that posted on the bulletin board in the library that the kids are reading those kinds of things. Um, uh, that, you know, that we we are one of the four group, one of the few groups that stood up uh, uh, to the. Uh, when, just after 9/11, uh, and uh, uh, we refused to divulge uh, uh, patron information about uh, to, to the government uh, uh, as a result of, uh, of some of the some of the efforts uh, for fact finding up after that. Uh, so to me, that's a very strong, very strong uh, uh, principle that we have to maintain. So let's go back to the sort of proactive things that maybe fall into the rabble rouser category, but you identify them as challenges. And you say there are seven areas that librarians, where librarians need to take action. Uh, there were a couple that were, sort of stood out for me, one of which was tying into the larger educational goals. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's been one of those things that maybe has uh, uh, come to me rather late in my career. Earlier in my career, I did a lot of work with uh, state and, and national standards in terms of what is it that makes a good library program. So many, so many books per student, so much staff per student, so, many square, uh, so much square footage uh, for the population you're building. And uh, there are both state and national standards that, uh, that prescribe fairly uh, closely what the ideal library uh, the, uh, should, should look like. Increasingly, though, I'm 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 of the I'm of the uh, uh, I'm really kind of convinced that that uh, there's no such thing as a perfect library program, uh, but there are perfect library programs for individual buildings, and unless we design a library program that suits the individual needs and goals and mission of our our parent institutions, uh, we're not really going to be uh, the perfect library. There's a little, uh, there's a very short little, uh, I guess, aphorism that talks about a man who climbs and climbs and climbs and reaches the peak of a mountain. 
willing to look over his shoulder and see that everybody else in the climbing party uh, went on a different mountain. And uh, I'm afraid that happens with uh, too many library programs who work very, very hard to create a, the perfect library program by ALA standards, but then we turn around and find out that our school is all about different kinds of, uh, of goals and, and, and achievements, and that doesn't bode well for us. There were two others that really caught my attention because I actually felt like they went together. One was helping others make meaning out of technology, and the other was staying connected. It feels as though we're in a period of time where it's so important to understand how to be connected and its value that if you're not doing that, it would be hard to help others make meaning out of it. Yeah, well, the, the whole technology thing, I think, has uh, has begun uh, become a role that perhaps has been, uh, uh, I wouldn't say forced on us, but it's one that we, 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 we seem to uh, uh, have uh, been given to us. And I think in a lot of ways it's natural. First, the technology thing is very natural to us because uh, uh, in our role as information uh, experts, we can't avoid the fact that most of our information now uh, comes digitally, we process digitally, we communicate digitally, all those kinds of things. So we can't do our traditional role of, of information literacy specialists without being, being good masters of technology ourselves. In terms of the connectivity, uh, uh, I think that librarians, school librarians especially, had a professional learning network even before the professional learning network was even a term, uh, was even a twinkle in somebody's eye. Uh, back in the mid-1990s, uh, Mike Eisenberg and Bob Berkowitz, no, not Mike Eisenberg and uh, the fellow from California, other people will, will know what, what it is. Uh, 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 formed something called LMNet, which was one of the very first uh, uh, email lists that uh, started out with about 100 school librarians and quickly grew to thousands and thousands of, of, of librarians. And I think a lot of that time understood the power then of a huge connected, uh, uh, literally a, 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 a biological database. You could send a question out to those thousands of librarians about a resource or a problem or a question. And you get almost an immediate response with really, really practical, feet on the ground kinds of, uh, of responses that, uh, that, uh, that were very valuable. Um, I think the other part of this connected learning is that I don't know of any profession that's changing more rapidly than ours. So we can't wait for the next conference. We can't wait for the next journal to come out. We can't wait for that next big annual or semi-annual event to find out what's happening in our field. We have to rely on our bloggers. We have to rely on our, our names. We have to rely on, on, on our, our, our Twitter feeds in order to find out what, uh, what's happening in the field and what's happening with the resources that we use. Doug, what is the new economic rationale? <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a really great question because uh, the previous economic rationale, which is, is was that, uh, is very simple. The whole rationale for libraries is that uh, uh, it's, it's, it's less expensive, it's more economical to buy one thing and share it than it is to buy a thing for everyone, right? Uh, so if I buy one copy of a book and I can share with my entire school, I can share with my entire community, uh, that becomes a real uh, uh, economical uh, advantage to, to everyone. But, you know, that's breaking down to a large extent. Uh, uh, I think it's still true in some ways, but, but when we're starting to look at maybe snippets of information that are either low cost or free or open source, uh, uh, we have to start looking at a different kind of a model uh, uh, that makes sense, uh, a different rationale, if you would, for having libraries in place. Well, for me, that rationale is probably less economic and more educational. I believe you still have to have somebody uh, in the institution who who understands uh, is, you know information and understands how you evaluate that information, how you find that information, how you use that information, how you communicate that information. Uh, uh, I don't know if that person has to be 
light years ahead of the rest of the staff, but they've got to be five or ten minutes ahead of the rest of the staff. Maybe that's the best that any of us can do. Um, I do think we're still in an era where we're going to be paying for for for, for quality information, uh, uh, and someone needs to be there to help select those e-resources, to help promote those e-resources, to help uh, uh, somehow uh, organize them so they can be found by, by others. Uh, how do you link those resources to our to our, our content management systems or or, or, or our, our e textbooks? And how do we evaluate whether those resources are, are of quality or not? So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if any of us knows quite what the economic model of libraries are going to be in the future. But I do think that that those schools that, that employ a librarian to help make good decisions about digital information sources are probably going to be more economically wise than those that don't. Doug, one of the things I can't, I keep thinking about, I can't get out of my mind, is the role that curation is beginning to play for me, um, and in my own children, sort of watching them move into a world in which having a depth of curated information on a particular topic becomes the career path. Um, how much is that being talked about, and, and how do you see that fitting in? Yeah, well, curation is just sort of like this whole term that's come up in the last few years, and I'm not exactly uh, sure I'm terribly comfortable with the term myself. Uh, uh, in a sense, I think curation maybe uh, reflects the fact that uh, we're hoping that, 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 that children, uh, students develop a, a passion or an interest uh, at a relatively young age, they continue to develop that that interest or that passion uh, throughout their uh, their educational futures, and as a result, uh, uh, they're going to be building a collection of of materials that have personal meaning and relevance to them. Uh, a part of curation is going to be very carefully selecting things that are valuable. Uh, I think it's also going to mean uh, tossing out those things that. Uh, Perhaps are no longer relevant as well too. I mean, a good curator is going to uh, both add and subtract from that that list of uh, uh, that bucket of of, of, uh, of information uh, sources. Uh, I'm sensing that a good curator is also going to be adding his or her own uh, uh, content uh, uh, to that collection. Uh, I'm very excited about. Uh, uh, students uh, building electronic portfolios, something we've talked about for years, but now it just seems like the technology is finally caught up with us. So now when I go to a, uh, a college interview or even I go to a job uh, interview, uh, I should be able to show uh, a body of work that I have produced that, uh, that demonstrates that, uh, that I have mastery of a particular uh, skill or discipline or, or area of study. I find it interesting in these conversations because one element of a portfolio was demonstrating to someone else your interest. Another aspect of a portfolio was actually discovering and collecting and manifesting your own internal interest. And it feels like that's part of the shift from institutionally being measured to driving your own learning. Um, you use, you give seven other points. Right, there are, the, there are the seven areas for the challenges, and then there are seven ways for librarians to remain relevant. And it feels like those seven ways to remain relevant sound like what we've always talked about teachers doing. Hmm. Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of blanking on those seven areas. I don't even know. Oh. Them, <laughs> <I'll so> you. <laughs> okay, you had remaining no, no. information. Remaining don't, don't hold me responsible for something I've written two years ago. I don't no, no, no. <laughs> Remaining information experts, supporting active style of learning, creating personal learning experiences, yeah. creating yeah. a welcoming and safe environment. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think those, uh, you know, you know, Steve, that there's, there's a huge schism in education right now. We've got, we've got one side of the fence that's the no child left behind, the race to the top, the assess everything and everybody multiple times using objective tests and uh, let's evaluate the teachers in the learning environment by how the kids do on the, the idiotic tests of endless dots. And then you've got the blogosphere and you've got all the people on the other side who 
who I think more have more of kind of a Dewey model or more of a of a of a of a, uh, um, a model that, that that stresses individuality, that stresses performance-based assessment, that stresses uh, 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 those kinds of things, where you you, you and, and personal empowerment and personalized learning, all those kinds of things. So. Uh, to me, you know, librarians, librarians have always been, you know, you talk about individualized education, librarians have always been all about individualization. You get a kid in your library, you don't give every kid the same book. You personalize that trip, that experience in the library to the individual student. I got one student that's going to want Hot Rod Magazine, you know, another kid who's going to want uh, a romance novel, I've got another kid that's going to want science fiction, I've got another kid who's going to be interested in something completely different. So we have always been, I think, about, uh, about really uh, uh, honoring the interests and honoring the abilities of the individual student, uh, which ties into a lot of what I'm seeing and reading about now on that kind of a uh, the left wing side, I would call of the educational change agent uh, uh, spectrum. Uh, so I, I mean, part I'm excited about that now. Whether 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 both sides prevail, and we have two separate strands of schools, like uh, like uh, 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 Jonathan Kozel says, we're going to have schools for the governors, the schools for the governed, uh, or whether you know the, the politicians are all going to drive us uh, underground, and we're all going to be uh, uh, in a teach the test kind of mode. I don't really know, but librarians, I think, for a long time, are going to fight for that. For I think that's that that that, that kind of education that I think honors the individual student. You know, Craig Seashoals is in the room, and I'm sure others would have interesting things to say about this, but Posse Salberg calls this a germ, the global education reform movement. And, and like a good virus, it doesn't necessarily benefit the host. It just has to be able to transmit. And one of the things that I think is becoming noticeable is this virus that, that is very much a reflection of colonial style education, right, the high stakes testing and the like. Mm -hmm. And I've kept wondering, you know, we, we export a lot of our schooling to other countries and uh, I, you know, like say Nepal for Craig, I keep wondering, wouldn't we do better if we were exporting libraries rather than schools? Yeah, you know, uh, I do a lot of work actually with, uh, with international uh, schools. Now they tend to be those that are that are built and maintained for the, the for expatriate children, but uh, uh, in in some ways, uh, international libraries are stronger, or at least traditionally stronger than, than 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 what we're seeing here in the United States as well too. Uh, you know, um, yeah, is it, is it Zhao Young that talks about uh, about sort of the fallacies that uh, uh, of the international test comparisons and, 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 and schools, and I think he's well worth reading and listening to. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it seems like Singapore uh, wants to figure out how it is the United States uh, uh, creates uh, people who are inventive that can, can, uh, can get all these patents that seems to uh, uh, lead the world in creativity, and at the same time, the United States now keeps looking to uh, countries uh, uh, like uh, like China, who train all these engineers. I think my Anne, would you turn that light back on? Because uh, it's sort of I don't know. Am I on video, or, or am I only? Being You're not. But okay. Anyway. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> I like to turn the lights off. So I, <laughs> I went into the dark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or was I? Uh, so I mean, I, I think it's interesting because no country seems to be particularly happy with the education system they have. Or at least I shouldn't say no country. I think there are plenty of parents that are very happy with the education system. I don't think any politician is particularly happy with the education system they seem to have. And uh, 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 I don't know. Uh, personally, I think I think the, the library philosophy of education is 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 one that values children and values uh, individuals. And, and I would be happy to export that to any place. Doug, um, I obviously gravitated in the book to the things that were of interest to me, in part because I'm not actually in a library program and I'm not going to be doing planning or advocacy or implementation. But there's a lot in this book for those who would be doing that. 
Do you want to take a couple of minutes and just describe kind of what you've got in the book that we haven't discussed so far? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, as, as I think about the way I approach uh, a, a, a book like this, uh, Peter Drucker said that, had, and I think had a rather pithy statement, he said that uh, leadership is doing the right thing and, and management is doing things right. And in this book, I tried to capture both sides of that uh, of that equation. Uh, I think we have a lot of leaders. I think we have a lot of visionaries in not just librarianship, but in education in general. But uh, those folks don't necessarily have clue one as to how to make those things actually uh, work in, in schools with real teachers and, and real budgets and real political realities and those kinds of things. At the same time, uh, you can be the world's best manager. You can you can you can put lots of things into places, but if you're not uh, managing a program that's making a difference for kids and changing the world, uh, what's the point of that either? So what I really tried to do here is balance both sides of those things and talk about both uh, um, both the, sort of the visionary leadership aspects of being a school librarian, but also, you know, how do you uh, how do you create a good budget? How do you do collaborative planning? How do you do? How do you assess your library program? How do you create a good communications plan which is going to build advocacy uh, for your program uh, in your community and among your staff and among your, among your parents? Uh, so uh, uh, the, the, the genesis of this book really, the first edition came out, I hate to say it's in 1997, so it's been a very long time in coming the second edition. And the second edition is probably 90% new. Uh, but the genesis of the book really was was a library management class that I taught uh, uh, back in the day as an adjunct faculty member. And, and just one of the really uh, practical things that you're going to need to know as a library student when you get out in the field in order for you to survive. And, uh, uh, and to a large degree, this is, uh, this is just a continuation of sort of that uh, very pragmatic effort as well. Uh, uh, I will guarantee you that if if you read the chapter on budgeting, you will get a bigger budget uh, next year for your library. I, I can I think I can I've heard from enough people who have told me that that, uh, that I don't want to sound like a snake oil salesman here, uh, but uh, but uh, uh, I think if you are concerned about keeping your job, there are going to be some tips in here that are going to help uh, uh, you have some techniques that are that will uh, uh, make you. Uh, 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 seen, be seen as more valuable to your to your administration, to your to your to your teachers, to your uh, students, and of course to your parents. So uh, I, I like I love the big picture. I love the, the crystal ball. I like thinking about what's going to be on the future. But at the same time, I know that we've got thousands and thousands of people that could uh, uh, that could perhaps benefit from more effective means of managing programs that they have now too, and making them more effective for kids. Doug, there's been a little bit of a dialogue in the chat about wishing that your book was available on Kindle. Um, the other book, Machines Are the Easy Part, People Are the Hard Part, is actually available for free to download as a PDF, and it's in the link in sure. my blog post. Um, so I want to shift to that somewhat for selfish purposes because there were some philosophical things that I thought were worth talking about. Uh, the, the book is illustrated by your son. I know it, you feel like it's a little bit dated, but I read the story of the giant and the ants, right? And it was the animals trying to get rid of the giant, and it was actually the ants who were able to do so by bringing small bits, each of them, in, in, of sand or whatever, and covering the giant. It felt to me like that was a great description of the kind of peer learning that the web has enabled educators getting together directly and teaching each other. Uh, is that, am I drawing the right conclusion there? Yeah, you know, that, that little story, that's an interesting story because uh, I, I actually did hear that from a guide when I was uh, uh, outside Nairobi uh, uh, about the, the Nagong Hills. Nagong is the Maasai word for knuckles. And he told the story about how that giant was conquered by the, the ants who buried uh, the giant with small bits of uh, pebbles, two or three pebbles, until 
he was buried so deeply he couldn't rise again. That's why you could just see the, the knuckles of the giant's hand. And I, I use that to, to end uh, my keynotes when I when I give talks a, a lot because, uh, and really the lesson for me there is that that too often times when we're looking for for change, whether it's in education or, or in society, we are always looking for the, the big animals, the elephants and the and the, the lions and, and everything to, to, to take care of those changes for us, the politicians or the our curriculum directors or our superintendents. Um, when instead if if each one of us as a result of attending a conference or connecting with other people or or trying one or two or three two or three new things uh, 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 are going to be the ones that really do make the positive changes in education. It's going to be each one of us doing our own small piece, which is going to be an, an eventually much more powerful than anything that the, that the big animals are going to be able to do out there. I'm going to keep going down the philosophical path here. You also sure. say machines shouldn't do people's jobs. And that really struck me with regard to a lot of the sort of massive online learning opportunities that are coming out of the artificial intelligence groups at universities. Um, is, there, is there some deeper human lesson here about what learning really is and, and what we should be focusing on? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't know about learning, but, I, but I, you know, I think people learn in lots of different ways. Uh, I think some of us like to learn by reading, some of us like to learn by doing, some of us like to learn by reading a book. You know, I think that's very much an individual preference. Uh, what I do see happening, though, is technology being used as a, uh, as a, uh, as a way of making education less expensive, cheaper, and especially less expensive and cheaper when it comes to educating kids who may not have a lot of, uh, come from a very high socioeconomic background. I worry that, uh, uh, well, somebody at the Department of Education back in the, in the late 90s said that in the future, the uh, the poor kids are going to have technology and the rich kids are going to have human teachers. And to a large degree, I see that happening right now. I worry about these schools that uh, where kids come in in the morning and they're stuck in front of a computer doing program uh, programmed instruction in these big uh, 90 or 100 uh, uh, station labs. and and they have very little interaction with human teachers. Uh, they are taught how to read. They are taught how to do math, at least at a fundamental basis. But uh, you know, to me, education, I guess, has always been about connections with other human beings and uh, uh, learning their passions, uh, uh, being regarded as another human being. Uh, Clifford Stoll, gosh, gosh, it's been a long time ago, too. You really, you really bring out the old man in me now. But he talked about the different kinds of messages that we send to our kids. Uh, one, if we put them in front of the computer to do flashcards uh, math, or if we actually sit down with them one-on-one -on -one and do flashcards with them individually, what does that show? Uh, what message are we sending about the value of that individual uh, to those students in each of those situations? So, um, uh, you know, I, I think you know, obviously, I love technology. I'm a technology director. I, you know, I'm surrounded by it. I think it has tremendous potential, but it only has potential, I think, if it's combined with that uh, that human aspect as well, too, in which uh, uh, we're felt cared about. We uh, we feel valued. Uh, we're not just something to stick in front of a screen. So interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm making this note to look up Clifford Stoll. Who said the poor kids will have technology, the rich kids will have teachers? You know, it was somebody from the Department of Education back in about 1996, and I'd have to look that up myself. I'm not even sure I have a name to go with that, but it's it's, uh, it's something that stuck with me for, for a very long time. It was something that was predicted, like I say, I think it was back in the, in the mid to late 90s. I'll, I'll have to look that up. I interviewed Kevin Kelly. Um, who talked about the at length the Amish and their approach to technology, and the sort of rational willingness to kind of experiment, see how the technology impacts the social culture, and then make a choice. Now, obviously, there are complexities there 
based on religious beliefs in the community. But it does seem like uh, that would be an important thing for us to make sure that we're doing. And you described that as being able to know when to use technology and when not to use technology. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think this is going to be very, very interesting. I'm, I'm a great fan of, uh, of Ray Kurzweil and, and his book, The Singularity is Near, and when the age of the spiritual machine and all those kinds of things. And, uh, 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 you know, I, I, I just think there's at some point in time that there's always going to be something that the human spirit has that the machine is not going to have. Uh, and I hope we, uh, we, we recognize that and, and we maintain that, especially in education. Uh, uh, and maybe it's, I'm just showing my age, but uh, but to me, education is really a uniquely human kind of an endeavor, uh, and uh, we're going to be doing a disservice to those children who don't have those human connections uh, uh, in education if we're not careful. Okay, I'm going to do one more from that book. No, I'm going to do two. The first one is three buttons on the garage door opener. <laughs> okay, I, I'm thinking that I was really I had to think about this, and I challenged myself not to look it up. But I'm thinking it's because you might have more than one garage door, and you'd use the same opener, or is there some other answer? Well, no, there actually is another 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 answer, kind of. Uh, actually, I've never figured out what the third button does, but the but the second button uh, does turn the garage light on and off. Oh. Uh. <laughs> And I'm thinking. I think, okay, here's the real one. Go ahead. So that's my. That, but that. But that's. But that's. That's just one of my examples in terms of uh, how technology can can uh, uh, for for can create what I call IDS, uh, uh, intellectual deficit syndrome, in a lot of us. Uh, uh, perhaps even especially those of us who are around kids who seem to uh, uh, take this stuff very naturally and don't need a manual, don't need instructions, and. Uh, but uh, my my garage door I think resonates with a lot of people. I got a, I got a whole bowl of remotes over here too that I, uh, I I tell people I have a television in my house that only my son knows how to operate. And since he's gone to college, it's never been turned on. But uh, what do you do? Very funny. Okay, here's my last one. Don't advocate for libraries. Advocate for library users. Yeah. Yeah, you know that that is to me just such a simple and no-brainer kind of a concept that uh, I'm almost embarrassed to have to say that uh, uh, the, the American Library Association, uh, AASL, everybody talks about library advocacy, library advocacy, library advocacy, and to me that is the most misguided thing that we can possibly be telling our people. We don't advocate for our libraries. We don't advocate for our library programs. We advocate for our library users. And until we start framing any of our requests, any of our plans, any of our budgets, any of that kind of stuff in terms of why is this good for the people who use my library, we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, uh, and you know, I, I think librarians at heart understand this when they advocate for libraries, that they are in essence advocating for li library users because they know the better their collection and the better their services, the better their staff, the better it's going to be for those people who are using their libraries. But we have to we have to make that connection for the decision makers who do control our budgets and our staffing and those kinds of things. And you never go in and say, I need a bigger budget because I need more books. You go and we say, I need a bigger budget because my kids need access to more materials. And I, I, to me, that seems very, very simple. But I think it's, uh, if, if I could, if I could like have my little magic wand and, and sprinkle fairy dust on every library in the world that would automatically transform them into saying one thing differently, would be that. So I said that was my last one. <laughs> I have one more, but I'm going to move us to Q and A. And then if we get a gap here, okay. I'll, I'll bring it up. Uh, if you'd like to ask Doug a question, you can raise your virtual hand. That's the third icon over in the participant window. If you hover over it, you'll see raise hand. Or you can put the question in the chat. While we're waiting for that, um, Doug, you said one more thing I wanted to make note of. You said the real changes are in teaching practices, not technology. And I know we've kind of covered that. But again, I thought that was just a really important statement. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, you could do drill and kill. Uh, you can do a lot of things that are very, very, uh, I would call them almost uh, 19th century or 20th century with uh, technology. It's, uh, uh, you know, Plato or one of those that said, Aristotle said, the technology is simply an amplifier. Uh, so, you know, you amplify, you make something worse, uh, Something worse that's bad with technology makes something good that's better. There's, the technology in and of itself doesn't really uh, uh, change the equation that much. So again, to ask Doug a question, feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your virtual hand. Doug, Clay Shirky kind of brought to our attention this idea of, you know, or, or he was one of some of those who brought to our attention this idea of the internet being comparable historically to the advent of the printing press. As somebody who lives deeply in this world, has that, um, has that made sense, or are there parts of that that don't make sense? Well, uh, in the sense that I think we're in for a fundamental shift in terms of how we deal uh, with information makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, I think we're, 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 we're moving away from uh, uh, information uh, having uh, an authoritative source being somebody with uh, a lot of letters behind his or her name now to being more crowdsourced to the wisdom of the masses kind of concept. You know, that's huge and that's fundamental. That's being driven by technology. Uh, uh, the, the, the biggest thing that I can see the differences between 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 the printing press is and and. Uh, uh, and the internet is just the rate of of of, uh, of, of the transformation. And the printing press, even though it was was you know it's been around for five six hundred years, didn't really have much of an impact on society for I mean literally decades and decades and decades after it was invented. Uh, you've got the internet now that's been been really popular for, since about 1995, I suppose. So we're looking at less than 20 years. Has had major impact. So, libraries had 500 years to, to adjust to the uh, to the printing press. We probably have about five years to adjust to the to, to the internet and digital information. It's just that speed with which uh, uh, these societal transformations are taking place that are to me it's just mind-boggling. And I don't know how uh, we, we move that quickly and make the choices. It's 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 going to be very very challenging. Okay, we have a question. So Eileen wants to know, what would you say to a group of teachers who do not understand the changes to the TL role? I'm thinking that's teacher librarian. How do you get them on side for collaboration, et cetera? Yeah, that's uh, one of the things that I, that I talk a lot about, well, about a lot in, in my book, but a uh, considerable amount is you know I'm a great believer in collaborative decision making and collaborative planning and and, uh, and joint ownership of the library program. Um, I discovered very early in my career that uh, I didn't necessarily know what it was the teachers wanted in terms of a library program or even the services that I could provide. But the best way to uh, to find that out is to form a library advisory committee or or have a group that would meet on a regular basis and help. Uh, 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 we uh, plan the program, develop policy, develop budgets, develop goals and objectives, and those sorts of things. Uh, by actively, I think, recruiting uh, teachers and parents and administrators and students to participate in those kinds of uh, long-term activities, I think you're going to uh, not only develop ownership of the program, and uh, but you're also going to be develop a more realistic view of what it is that people actually want to. Okay, Doug, we're probably at the moment. That was really fun. Thank you. I'm glad we finally pulled Thank this you. off. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Your questions were incredible, Steve. You're, you're, I, you, you, I'm, 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 I'm astounded by your intellect. I, I really, truly am. <laughs> now I'm going to worry all night. That's too much pressure. You've just done an Alfie Cohn. No, 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 it was purely a compliment. No, no, no. No, it's not Alfie Cohn. It, it would be, um, uh, what's her name from Stanford, with the fixed mindset and the growth mindset, uh, Carol Dweck. 
I, and now I'm going to be feeling oh. protective of my reputation, and so I'll worry and I won't take risks. Oh. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think that's going to be the case. You're funny. Okay, so thanks so much to Doug Johnson. The book is The Indispensable Librarian, Surviving and Thriving in School Libraries in the Information Age. Don't miss tomorrow night with the amazing Michelle Cordy, and then on Thursday with Kevin Jones. Take care, everybody. Bye now. Bye, Doug. Thank you, Steve, very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.